0: Kind of club or some kind of group. And for that very first time you were said you are in my journey was when I was in grade school, a little kid, uh, I, uh, the sport of basketball became something that was really something I pursued with, with great interest. And I would, uh, my parents would take me to watch some of the high school games. And I was just in awe of those guys. I mean, they could do some things out there. They're like, wow, that is impressive. I want to do that someday. I'd even keep stats. I'd look in the newspaper. Back when we had newspapers, I would actually look up in the box score and see who scored uh, so many points the night before. And I followed them. And that little dream, that nugget of that vision of becoming a basketball player had begun in my life. And then all of a sudden, uh, I I also realized how how short I was falling of, of meeting the expectations and the requirements to become a high school basketball player. And then all of a sudden, Uh, I find myself as a sophomore uh, in, in high school, and I competed hard, and I worked out, and I had played on several teams before. And then that next year, that next November as a junior, I got called in after tryouts, and they said, John, you've made the varsity team. And it was like, yes, this dream has been fulfilled, and there's nothing like that that day. And, in fact, when you coach little kids, if any of you had a chance to do that yet, what is the first thing they ask you usually at the first practice? When do we get the jerseys? Right. It was as if when I put that jersey on. Now that was back in. I'm going to date myself. That was back in 1986. Not quite the dry fit, high tech materials. We're talking. We're talking about polyester. It really wasn't very comfortable, actually. But boy, that thing might have been made as well as I was concerned. It might have been as well made of gold because that's how much it was worth to me. Because I had aspired to be something and someone for the longest time, and that day. I put that jersey on, and I became someone different. I was now associated with some that I only dreamed of being associated with. It was almost like my identity had changed. So my question for you today and what we're going to talk about today is what would the requirement be to make God's team? Who is good enough to make that? Would you please all rise and stand here for, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 15 and in uh, what we do at New City Church is we like to stand in respect for God and his word. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let me pray. Most holy, precious God, Lord, we come before you today. Lord, on this three-day weekend, I know we've got a lot of things going on in our life, Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, you would just clear the clutter right now, that this morning, for this moment, we would just consider you right now, and we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us today. As we consider this, Lord, who is worthy of being in your presence? Who can make your team? God, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, Lord, they would be pleasing to you in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and right redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, today we're ending our, our five-week series, uh, Summer in the Psalms, and we've talked about a lot of different things uh, that David has brought up in these Psalms, Psalm 11 through 15, what we're talking about today. David's talked about his sorrow about being surrounded by his enemies, his feelings of loneliness and isolation, his looking for the faithful, where are they, and then crying out to God for salvation. And it's easy to think about centuries and centuries ago when this was actually written. That was then, but this is now. But really, when we think about this, boy, there's a lot of similarities to today, isn't there? Last week, Pastor Aaron talked about Psalm 14, which described the fool who says there is no God. Talked about their corruption, their abominable deeds. And he went on to define the fool as a senseless, militant rebellion against the obvious. And before we could become judgmental about those guys that do that, he taught us that, yes, even we, God's people, can become functional atheists when we pursue something other than God in our hearts, otherwise known as idolatry. Our psalm today is in contrast to last week's psalm, the ungodly. Today we're talking about the godly. This describes the godly person, the one who is pleasing and acceptable to God. It dares to ask the million-dollar question, who can be right with God? So we're going to talk about three points today. The question, the qualifications, and the quintessential person. Yes, I tried to squeeze a Q in there. You know how hard that is to find that quintessential? we are going to have to run with me. Give me some grace on that. Thank you. The first, the first verse, the question, who can be right with God? David wasn't alone in asking this and referring uh, into this question scripture talks about many different times who can who can ascend to god's hill in malachi 3 the prophet asked who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears the prophet joel also asked for the day of the lord is great and very awesome who can endure it to sojourn in the lord's tent or dwell on his holy hill is to be a divinely welcomed guest into god's house this was a reoccurring theme in Psalms. David wrote again in Psalm 23, the famous, the Lord is my shepherd Psalm, when he says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27:4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. David said, if I had to ask a million different things, if I could sum it up in one, you only got one wish from God, this is what it would be. They would have to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To dwell in a house meant to be like a child under authority, under the rule, and even the supply of that owner. To live under a roof of an earthly home, or we know that, that means to meet the requirements, right? The do's, the don'ts, but also to receive all the benefits like food, shelter, and clothing. Not just anyone could dwell in the house either, only family and the closest of friends. When I was in middle school, I got to, like most of us, I think, we got to spend the night at some friends' houses, and most of them were pretty average homes. But I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine whose dad was a multimillionaire owned a five-story mansion, and I got to spend the night. He invited me over one night, and and I got to spend the night in one of the rooms in the the five-story mansion. Wow, was that a treat. Can you imagine what this would be like to dwell in God's house? Uh, last, uh, last month, NFL Hall of Famer Frank Gifford uh, passed away. For those who don't know, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he was even had a broadcasting career on Monday Night Football. Uh, and his wife, Kathy Lee Gifford, was on the air, and, and she shared some insights on her husband's faith. Uh, he was spent most of his life in the limelight in the, in the public eye, But underneath it appears that there was a Christian faith behind it. And one comment she made that stuck out to me was how later in his life, he grew deeper in his Christian faith. And in her words, she said, His world got smaller as his God got bigger. So let me ask you a question How big is your God? King Jesus, uh, or actually in in Isaiah chapter 6, he had a vision. The the prophet Isaiah, who was doing God's work, prophesying on behalf of the living God, had an encounter with the living God. And in chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting above on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with the two he flew. He flew. Think about that. King Jesus, his robe was so big, so long. A king, a king the longer the robe, the, the greater the majesty of the king. This king's robe filled the entire temple with glory. The foundation shook with the praise for this king. I just know that we have a tendency, I sure do myself, to create my own mind a limited view of who God really is. And consequently, when we have a limited view of who God is, we we would think that he would have a limited view of his requirements. But if we've got a massive view of God, what kind of requirements would there be to live in his house, to dwell under his care? See, if you view God as a harsh ruler or a heavenly policeman or some kind of distorted view, maybe an unfair judge, you probably wouldn't have much interest in dwelling in God's house. And I've met many people who that, that is truly what they believe what God is. But that's a distorted view. It's unbiblical. Yeah, God is just, and he's going to carry out his judgment. There's no question about that. But we also know that God is good. God's merciful. He's slow to anger. God is love. Not that he's just loving. He is love. So can you imagine how incredible it would be to be accepted and dwell closely with this God? In the very next psalm, David shows how remarkable his view of God was when he said, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let's unpack this. What does it take to make the cut with God? Verses 2 through 5 list a number of different qualifications. But here's a couple things that jumped out to me. One, these are mainly matters of character. That went beyond just the written law, the do's and the don'ts. They're not sacrifices or ritual purity, but moral righteousness that give access, access to God. It's also interesting to note that these are aimed as much at promoting the well being of others as it is for personal contact. There's four general categories listed. The first, they're directed, let's see, the direction of their life is towards God. This person walks blamelessly. This speaks to the overall direction of a person's life, their lifestyle, not just the talk, but also the walk. The person has an ordered li- order of their life according to the word of God, and any person who's on a journey of any sort, you're going somewhere, right? In Psalm 1, David said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. This word blamelessly could also be translated uprightly. So picture a tightrope walker walking narrowly on that wire. Can't not vary to the left, cannot vary to the, light, to the, to the right. This person does what is right. It's the demonstration of their faith that comes out in good works. And we know in the book of James, he talks and says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be a blessing in his doing. There's a difference between professing faith and possessing faith. Martin Luther said it once. He said, we are saved by faith alone, and that is absolutely true. But the faith that saves is never alone from works. That the byproduct of a transformed heart in Jesus Christ will be good works. Second category, this person speaks with integrity. They speak truth in their heart. Now, compare this from last week's fool who spoke lies in his heart to the one this chapter, 15, says, is approved of the Lord. This is not merely a truthful word spoken out of the mouth. This is truth that resides in someone's heart. Remember, Pastor Aaron last week, he taught us, it's not what comes out of your mouth that makes you an atheist. It's what you believe in your heart. Luke 6, 45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart His mouth speaks. It's very revealing to me in recent years how God has helped me to connect the dots between uh, scripture uh, verses that I've known for many years and understanding that I've landed on this truth. God is more concerned with our motives than He is with our behavior. Let me say that again. I chose those words carefully. He's more concerned with our motives, our heart, than He is with our behavior. It's not that he's not concerned with our behavior, our words, and our actions, but we know all of those come really from inside of our heart. Jesus warned the false prophets and taught that their false words came from the lies that were in their hearts. In Matthew 7, he said, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. In other words, the heart. Every action and word of our lives, it's birthed in our hearts. Sometimes we can fake it, and sometimes, even with selfish, evil motives, we can produce outward deeds that that look good and look pure on the surface, but really, it's only fool's gold. At the core of it, it's selfishness and sinful. Can you imagine how Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 must have sounded to those self-righteous who think they were right before God because of all the things they did with a prideful heart. He said, you have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder. Those who will be murder, those who murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, I'm keeping all the commandments, that's great, but have you kept the heart of the commandments as well? It's apparent that David had learned this lesson. He knew he could fool most people most of the time, but there was no way he was going to pull the wool over God's eyes. He said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This person also does not slander with his tongue. This is backbiting, malicious talk about someone when they're not present. Proverbs 11, 12 speaks some truth to us. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Speaking truth in our heart consists not only of uttering truthful words from a pure motive, but also in resisting the temptation to slander others. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to bite our lips. I think we can all admit being in a situation where we've had the opportunity to speak something false or damaging about someone else, which would give us an advantage and to make us look better. Buying into that lie that if my neighbor's house burns down, mine looks better. But let me ask you a question today. Have you ever thought about sarcasm? This was a painful lesson for me several years ago because I feel like I'm the king of sarcasm. I can go into a locker room or a group of wherever guys and I can start throwing around the sarcasm. But did you know that the English word sarcasm actually comes from the Greek word sarcosmos, which one definition means to cut or tear flesh? Think about it. I mean, think about when you're in a room. When I go into that room, when I go into that group of guys that I know, and I know it's a sarcastic environment, and for me to dwell with these guys, I've got to be sarcastic. What are the things I'm going to go look for? Probably not the good, probably not the things they're doing well, probably some of the flaws in them. Nice hat, right? Hey, boy, another presentation like that, boy, you're going to be climbing the ladder here, buddy, right? Now, that may sound jovial, it might be sound fun, but at the core of it, really, it's tearing someone else down. It's a painful one. This is not acceptable to God. Proverbs 26 also says, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor, and says, I'm only joking. This person also does not take up a reproach against his friend. This seems to be talking more about gossip. We all deal with this. I know I'm tempted by this all the time, don't we? Maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor. Maybe it's even a family member. Think about how much da- damage has been done in your life by someone who's been gossiping about you behind your back. The fact of the matter is, if there was no one there to listen to the gossip, it wouldn't go any further, would it? Plain and simple. John Trapp said, the tail bearer carries the devil in his tongue. The tail hearer carries the devil in his ear. The knowing recipient of stolen goods is just as evil as the thief. David is described it, describing a person who speaks no evil of anyone and does not make others' faults the matter of common talk. If an ill-natured story came by them, they would disprove it if they can, and if not, they wouldn't go any further. This person swears to his own hurt and does not change, even if it costs them severely. They won't back down from keeping their word. Boy, it seems like there's a, there's a sore lack of integrity and, and truthfulness in our words today in our society isn't there. We say one thing and do something else. That's otherwise known as hypocritical, Right? This is speaking to keeping an oath, doing what you say what you're actually going to do, even when it doesn't benefit you. In other words, if you're a person of unshakable integrity, taken to the extreme, this person would even give their life to keep their word. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what our Savior did for us? He kept his word all the way to obedience, obedience on a cross. This one is also hard for me to go through because how many times have you been around someone who's told you about a struggle in their life? Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis of a a dear family member. Maybe it's a struggle with a relationship or they just got laid off from work. And what's our good Christian response? Well, I'll pray for you. We'll be praying for you. Or maybe I should put that in a little more somber tone. We'll be praying for you. How many times have you said that and actually not done that? I'm going to raise my hand first. I'm not asking for raising the hands here. I've done that many times. I had a friend of mine who counseled me on this. He says, listen, I really got convicted about that, John. I want to be a man who does what he says he's going to do. So when someone would bring up something about, boy, I've, I've got him going for surgery, and I don't know how this is going to go. Instead of saying, I'm going to pray for you, you know what he did? He says, let me pray for you. And he stopped right there and then and actually prayed for him right there. This person also, in the general category, promotes the welfare of others. They do no evil to their neighbor. In our neighborhood, I'm sure just like yours, we've got some interesting characters. Uh, we've got some young. We've got some old. We've got some uh, who take great care of their lawn. We've got some who probably don't know what a lawnmower is, it seems like. Uh, some some take it great care. And we've actually seen some unbelievable conflict, too. We've got some some neighbors who are who are just... They're putting up tape. They're all, they're, they've got this dispute going, and it's gone to the point of actually calling the cops on each other. I mean, it's just really gone, gone nasty. Jesus taught the second part of the greatest commandment, right? The first part is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And he said the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. But this goes beyond just the obvious evil towards our neighbor. It can be much more subtle. Psalm 28 says, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Even harboring hateful thoughts in our heart is unacceptable to God. This person also, in their eyes, a vile person is despised. So does this mean we're supposed to go on a crusade against vile people? I had to really struggle and take a lot of time on this phrase of of this chapter. The context here suggests that this is actually a member of God's people who rejects the covenant life. One who refuses God, loathes God, undervalues God, and is rejected by God. To put it another way, whoever God rejects, we should reject. Whoever God loves, we should love. But also notice in the phrase, it says, in his eyes. This verse is not authorizing a crusade or even action against others. It implies a heart attitude. When we see vile, defiant actions against Almighty God, we are to despise what that person represents an offense to God. This person also, conversely, honors those who fear the Lord. These are the ones who embrace God, embrace His covenant promise, submit to His law, and are worthy of our honor. This is also taught in the New Covenant when Jesus taught us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Fourthly, this person resists using their money for selfish gain. They're also not putting their money out at interest, but they're also not taking bribes against against the innocent. There's nothing like money to show really what kind of attitude our heart has, doesn't it? People always said, you know, we can really find about what your priorities are in life because we can go look at your checkbook and see where you're investing your money on that God's given you, right? In the surrounding pagan cultures at this time, loans were often given to enslaved people. So this is not saying lending money is an evil thing in and of itself, but lending money in ancient Israel was intended to help the poor. And there were some unscrupulous lenders going around who used debt as a means of extortion. Some poor had... had had even given up to mortgage their lands, vineyards, and houses, and actually had sold their sons and daughters into bondage. That's what this is calling against. See, the righteous person sees their money as a gift from God, not of their own. It's never to be used to harm someone else. And as I talked about earlier, either one of these outward actions began inside of our hearts. It reveals what we treasure, what we worship. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus said. So what about all this long 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 list of all these requirements? As I say it there's basically two different reactions that we can have to this. One would come from what I would consider a prideful heart. Someone says, "You know John, I've actually done a pretty good job. I can check a lot of those off. I have I have been good to my neighbor. I haven't been slanderous with my tongue. I'm really not that bad." Or maybe it goes to, well, God graves on a curve, doesn't he? My teachers did in school. That I'm not that bad. At least I'm over the bell curve. I'm at least on that on that above average category, aren't I? He's, he's going to see that in me. I did, and and it's, it's easy to say, well, yeah, that's that prideful jerk out there. But let me tell you about something that happened just this Friday as I'm preparing for this message. My state director, I'm, uh, I work uh, full-time uh, for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And my state director... Sent out an email, uh, and it had one of those red exclamation points by the email. And it said, me and the other directors, guys, here are three things that I asked you to have done today and I haven't heard back from you yet. This, this, and this. I was convicted. I quickly, of course, did those quick th- three things and tried to say, "Here, here you go, sorry. But I want to be honest with you. What was going through my heart was a little bit of anger. Was a little bit of justification, self-justification in my own heart. See, I was thinking, why would he have me do that? Why would? He? And I was making all these excuses why I didn't just. I just wasn't a man of integrity who said I would do this, boss, and I didn't do it. It creeped up on me this pridefulness. But maybe it's the second reaction is, is is a humble heart. Is to understand that as we really dive into what these phrases, what these words really mean, is John, I I don't measure up. In fact, I don't know if I can check any of these off. I'm falling way short, and I'm in big-time help. Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector that I believe summed up this attitude that God requires. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector, standing far off, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Look at all the things I do. I give tithes of all of I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pastor Andy said two weeks ago, the moment we become Christians is when we admit we're wrong. Jesus clearly pointed out those who are well off, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So here it is. God has what we need and what we don't deserve, righteousness. That's the requirement, blamelessness, perfection, holiness, righteousness. And we have what God hates and rejects, that's sin. So what's God's answer to this? Because, by the way, what would our answer be? <laughs> I'll clean up my act. Please accept me on a C- kind of grade. Who could possibly meet all these qualifications, by the way? Only God himself. In Deuteronomy 32, it says the rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. There is one man who met these qualifications perfectly. It's Jesus Christ. The greatest substitution ever. I, I, I was blessed to have a coaching career. I know Coach, uh, Pastor Aaron, I was going to call him Coach Aaron coaches high school for a uh, little league football. And uh, I got to coach uh, basketball for 21 years. I made a lot of substitutions. Some were better than others. But the greatest substitution ever was what Jesus did. Second Corinthians 5.21 sums it up. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, we deserve to get cut. We don't meet the requirements and qualifications. We're no hopers. God knows us so well and loves us so much that he sent his son to take that punishment that we deserve and substitute and credit us with his perfect record. Some have called this the great exchange. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller is one of my uh, favorite modern-day pastors, and he sums up this, and I think we have it up on the screen here. The gospel, the good news is this. We're more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same very time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That is good news. The quintessential person, who is this person in the last phrase of this, They will endure forever. They will not be moved. One of my favorite names of God is the rock. I picture this massive boulder, immovable by even the biggest machine we can imagine, a rock that weathers the storm, that's steady and unshakable. It's permanent. Because when I realize and I really examine myself and I search my own heart, I'm certainly the opposite of that. I'm a box of chocolates. I don't know what you're going to get day to day, moment by moment. John is up, he's down, he's sideways, he's just all over the map. But as I was praying this morning, I was thanking God that you are the rock. You are the immovable one. When I'm floating all about, I've got that steadiness. You're my anchor, you're my rock. Psalm 18 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. In just a moment, we're going we're to sing a song, and I want to I point out to you, I love singing the, the, the hymns, the songs that we sing here at New City because they're they're so deep and so rich in God's word, in the study of God, in the truth of God. Let me read a couple of the verses we're about to sing here in a second and let those sink into you today. Let them not just pass by, as you've sung it a, a thousand times maybe, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion. For those who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who have said, there is no way I can stack up God. You are real. You are the creator. You are the living God. And I can't measure up. And only by your grace, you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, that through my trust, my repentance, and belief in him, I have eternal life. We come here today to celebrate what Christ has done for us. We welcome you if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and and, and experienced this with us both to celebrate also our sin and to to reflect on our sin, but also to celebrate what is received in that, the righteousness of God. We can dwell on his holy hill in eternity. We will if our faith and trust is put in him. If you have never done that before in your life, let me just ask you a question from my heart. What's stopping you from that? I encourage you today, consider that. Not some religious exercise, just between you and the God of the universe. You have an opportunity to receive, to repent of who you are and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there's new life waiting for you today. And if you have done that today, we welcome you here. Please let us know. Let me pray for us. God, who could ascend to your hill when we recognize that you are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are the living God. You are Yahweh. And, Lord, we are when we really are honest with ourselves, we reflect and see we are so far from your righteousness, it's not even funny. We cannot measure the distance of that. So, Lord, in our deadness of our sin, you brought life to us through Jesus Christ, the living hope that he was. God, I thank you for that. I praise you for that. And I pray that every man, woman, and child within earshot of this would ponder that today. Lord, by your spirit, that you would give them a greater understanding of what that actually means. And Lord, I pray that you would use us. What what an honor it would be to use our lives, not for ourselves, but for your glory, to proclaim this good news to others. God, may we honor you. May we glorify you through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.